0: Well, good morning. Welcome to Faith Bridge. Glad that you are here. So, <clears throat> we're nearing the completion of a half-year series that we've been doing as we're journeying through the Sermon on the Mount. Today we come in our sub-series within that series that we're calling Ugly Instincts. We come to a hot-button button topic that Jesus addresses this subject that all of us wrestle with, and that is the subject of lust. So why did not you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. That's where we're going to go, Matthew chapter 5. And if you didn't bring a Bible, uh, you wave at one of the ushers, and they'll be glad to let you borrow one, which you might like having in your lap if the s- subject gets a little awkward and you just want to look down, at least you'll have something to look at. So... <laughs> Incidentally, if you did bring a young person in when you're not ready for that conversation, I'd say maybe up to 13 or 14 of eight, uh, years maybe, you've still got a minute to get them checked in to kids ministry, youth ministry. While you're doing that, I'll remind you of a story that I've always thought was funny that, that uh, Gary Smalley used to tell. It was of a preacher who had been invited to preach to a neighboring church's women's ministry group. And they had asked him to come and speak on the subject of sex. So that morning, after getting dressed, he'd eaten his breakfast, and he was about to head out the door when his wife said, So what are you talking to that group of ladies about over the other church? And he just felt so awkward about saying what it was really about that he said, Sailing, and he walked out the door. Well, several days later, a couple of women saw his wife at the store and came running up to her and said, your husband gave the most amazing talk. You are such a blessed woman to have a husband who can talk about that subject with such clarity and sensitivity and understanding. His wife paused and said, you know, that's really so odd to me because he's only really ever done it twice. The first time he fell off and the second time he vomited. (laughs) (laughs) all right so let's talk about matthew 5 we'll start in verse 27 you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery but i tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart if your right eye causes you to stumble gouge it out and throw it away it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell And if your right hand causes you to stumble cut it off and throw it away it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell so what i want to do today is try to approach this uh, text in uh sort of from three different angles So if you're a note taker, here they are. The first one, I want to talk about what was Jesus addressing here? And the second one that we'll talk about is why does it matter so much? And then thirdly, what should we do about it? All right, so that's where we're going to go. First, what was the problem? Jesus was addressing a big problem, big misunderstanding in that time and in this time as well. Because see, the teachers of the law back then, had essentially been asking the very same sort of question that I remember being asked several decades ago when I was doing youth ministry. And all the pubescent hormonal young men would want to ask, so Ken, how far is too far? In other words, if I'm with a girl is holding hands just isn't quite enough, is hugging okay. And if hugging isn't quite enough, is kissing okay. And if kissing is enough, is fondling okay. And if fondling isn't enough, I got it, I got it, I got it. You're wanting to know, where's the line? That's what you're asking, yes. Well, that's exactly what the teachers of the law were doing 2,000 years ago. Because <clears throat> prior to Jesus' arrival, they thought they had it figured out. Their conclusion as long as you're not committing adultery with another man's wife, you're clear. You haven't crossed the line. And so you can just imagine some of the r- religious leaders back then in Jesus, they were almost straining their shoulders to reach back and pat themselves on the back every night that they hadn't slept in the wrong bed with the wrong woman. They were so proud. Jesus marches into their world and says, "Uh uh-uh. You're convincing yourself the line is still way out there in front of you, uncrossed, but you're wrong. Gentlemen, you've crossed the line a long time ago. In fact, the moment that you started bouncing from bed to bed in your own thoughts and imaginations. And don't you know that they were like Jesus What are you talking about? You've got to be kidding this in our mind. Nope. I tell you the truth, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Just by looking? Just by having lustful thoughts? Well, don't you know that caused some of his people to squirm as he was teaching this? Because it's causing some of you to squirm right now. (coughs) Incidentally, since Jesus was addressing men about women in this context, it's tempting for us, even today, 2,000 years later, to assume, well, this is kind of a guys-only talk, and, but that wouldn't be fair to you, ladies, and at FaithBridge, we would never patronize you women by diminishing your abilities to be every bit as sinful as men, <laughs> because, ladies, we know the truth. You struggle with lust no less than men. Of course you do, and it's nothing new. You can go back to the very first book in the whole Bible, Genesis, and you remember that story with Potiphar and his wife, and they had a new slave called Joseph, the man of many many colors. Remember what happened? Potiphar's wife, she starts doing a little comparison in her mind. She's looking at young Joseph, and she's thinking, good-looking, fit, virile, kind, hardworking. My husband, Potiphar, you'll fart. She's, <laughs> until one day she finally just throws herself at young Joseph and says, Joseph, come to bed with me. <clears throat> And that was back in the first book of the Bible. So this is nothing new, ladies, right? This has never been a male-only problem. Shannon Etheridge writes, a woman's disappointment in her husband, her circumstances, God, life, money, or more can cause her heart to wonder through fantasizing, comparing her husband to every other man, obsessing on who and what her husband is not compared to the other guy. And as I was studying this week, I came came across an article online written by Kelly Needham. She's the wife of musician Jimmy Needham, who some of you remember because he grew up in this church. And his wife Kelly writes, As long as I've been in church, I've known that sexual sin was a guy's struggle, but somehow thought it was apparently not so common for women. So what was I to do when my mom's Victoria's Secret catalog arrived and I secretly ogled over the pictures wishing that I looked like those women? Or when I replayed intimate and sexual scenes from Titanic in my head? Or when I discovered certain parts of my body felt great when touched in a certain way? She writes a truth is lust is a temptation common to humanity, not just women, uh, not just men. We women might not struggle in all the same ways as our brothers do, but every one of us knows the pull of lustful temptations. For most women, the lust battle is birthed in the emotions. Give us a gushy romantic comedy or a sensual book like The Notebook, and it can do us in. <coughs> Incidentally, this is why many... Uh, guy does not like watching chick flicks with their wives because after watching two hours of chick flick, the husband sighs and concludes, I can never measure up to him. I'll never look like him. I'll never say all those things that he says at just the right time in the right way. Just like most wives sigh and resent their husbands looking at young ladies in little bikinis because they know physically, I'll never measure up to her beautiful face or figure. See, both genders are susceptible to the pain-numbing temptation caused by lust, which is why the porn industry is a runaway industry. As a matter of fact, I I discovered as I was studying, one study shows that just between two prominent porn sites, more than 1.2 million years worth of porn has been watched since just 2006. That's a lot of watching. It's not just men. Sadly, the fastest-growing consumer of online porn now is young women. But I know, still, some will ask, what's the big deal? Why does lust matter? That's the second thing we're going to talk about. Why is Jesus so concerned about this? Before answering it, let's clear up one misconception that typically slips into the conversation right about here. Was Jesus anti-sex? No, no. Jesus was never saying that sex, when used as it was originally intended to be used, was a bad thing. And that's a particularly important thing to emphasize for some of you who are new. You're new to church. You're new to God. You're new to the Bible. You're new to Jesus. Jesus. And you need to get this very clear in your mind, because you've probably heard somewhere along the way, well, everybody knows the church is against sex, because God is against sex, too. That's not true. That is absolutely not true. Quite the opposite. In fact, God invented it. (laughs) Did you ever think of that? (laughs) So God thinks sex is totally good. All you got to do to see it is just turn in your Bible to the book called Song of Solomon which is an extended love song expressing sexual love between the husband and the wife. Chapter seven brings you an interesting scene. It says the husband's looking at his wife who's coming towards him for sexual intimacy. And as he's watching her walking to him, he says, your breasts are like clusters of fruit. And I'm taking hold of that fruit. (laughs) And in chapter five, she describes her husband saying, His hair is wavy and black as a raven. His lips are like lilies dripping with myrrh. His body is like a polished ivory tusk. This is my lover. This is my friend. Incidentally, scholars agree that that verse is translated a lot more mildly in English than if you could read it in Hebrew. Because in Hebrew, that tusk of ivory that she's describing, so polished and erect, is a description of his. Private part, and it's right there in the Bible. I keep telling you people, you should read the Bible. It's not so bad. So God's word makes very clear that God is not anti-sex. He's created all of us with those desires and he's even created the perfect context for those desires to be enjoyed. What's that context? Within the confines of a monogamous male-female marriage. Because sex within marriage is a glorious thing. It's unifying. It's healing. It's bonding. It's, it's good. Sort of like fires are good if they're in a fireplace. But fires aren't so good when they're taken out of the fireplace to where they're burning the house down, Right? Similarly, Jesus was affirming that sex is a good and rapturous and wonderful thing so long as it's being enjoyed the way that God always intended within a trusting marriage. But lust, on the other hand, lust has everything to do with sexual desires being expressed inappropriately outside the context of a loving, committed, monogamous marriage. So why does this matter? Now, three little sub points under number two for your note takers. The first is this reason. It's dehumanizing. That's the first reason it matters. That's the first reason Jesus was talking. It's dehumanizing. So it's not wrong, let's get this clear, to say, wow, she's very beautiful. Or "He's very attractive. It's not wrong to observe someone's natural face or figure or to take some note of someone who's particularly kind or sensitive or caring. That's not dehumanizing. So when does it become dehumanizing? About five seconds later. That's when it tends to happen, when we don't move on from that initial observation in our minds, from those initial thoughts of attractiveness, but instead start to stew and simmer on those thoughts, envisioning or fantasizing about how nice it would be to possess him or her for ourselves. Remember King David in the Old Testament? Remember how in that scene... One evening after his siesta, he got up and went out to the palace balcony and he's surveying his kingdom. And there, while he's standing and looking out over there, what does he see? He sees Bathsheba, beautiful in face and form, who'd forgotten to close her bathroom shutters. And she was taking her, her bath and he's gazing upon her. And gazing longer and longer. And you just picture his his assistants, his servants, saying, um, King, there's so many other things to look at in your kingdom. And there's a beautiful sunset. Why don't you look over this direction, King? But he wasn't moving. He just kept going with it in his mind. Now, your Honor, <laughs> she's married to Uriah. Remember that. One of your mighty men. <laughs> you know Uriah. But he didn't let his eyes or his mind move on. That initial glance became a fixated fantasy. And because of his kingly power, that fantasy became his reality. Billy Graham used to say, <coughs> you can't help notice, you can't help notice when a beautiful bird flies over your head. But there's a difference between that initial glance and letting the bird build a nest on top of your head. <laughs> That's a pretty good way to put it. Lust is when you're letting that initial thought nest in your mind and your heart. You start fixating on on it and fantasizing about it. The reason this is dehumanizing is because it's so incomplete. See, you're separating one portion of that person, the portion that excites you most, and you're wrenching it away from the rest of that person whom God has created. Sort of like if you went to the archives and you pulled out one of those, those great, old, historic, classic books of literature. And while nobody's looking, you just ripped out one of the pages, folded it and stuck it in your pocket and scurried off. I don't care about the whole rest of the book. I just want a page. Lust is like ripping a page from the book of somebody else whom God created and just taking it for your own pleasure. By contrast, love takes the whole book, the whole package, involves the whole person and culminates in marriage when then it can encompass, among other things, all the pleasures of sexual intimacy. So... From time to time, I have opportunity to interact with a young man in this season. And one day in my presence, I think he's 19 or 20, he was reading a text from his buddy, and he whispered just loud enough that I could hear it. He goes, cool. He's reading his text. My buddy lost his virginity. He finally got her. But I didn't have anything to say to that. But a month or so later, I found it interesting that he... And I were talking again, and he said, Ken, I've noticed something. Whatever you talk about, Suzanne, your wife, I noticed that you always talk about marriage in, in happy terms. It seems like you're happily married. I just can't figure out how does that happen. I said, oh, it's simple. I married my best friend. He was totally perplexed. Said, Marry your <laughs> best friend? I said, yes, the thought had never crossed his mind. And I had likewise knew because I've hung around with him enough and listened to his conversation enough that he's never thought of a woman as anything like a potential best friend because he's only seen women as objects who could provide some sexual stimulation for him. I said, see, I've listened to how you talk about women. You only think they're toys. Nothing more. But now listen to your heart's desire. Deep down, you'd like to have what I have. You marvel that there could actually, maybe, possibly, really be someone out there that could love you all the way through, that could know you and appreciate you and take you fully for who you are. I said, but listen, (laughs) that will never be possible for you as long as you keep trying to build on the foundation of lust, hoping somehow that that will culminate in some sort of meaningful, beneficial, committed love. Lust, I said, is like cotton candy. It dissolves the moment it hits your tongue, but if you could learn how to manage your lust and move beyond them to something that is healthy, Full of respect and friendship with ladies guess what you might actually meet one who you loved all the way through and who loved you back all the way through and you'd be on your way and yes you'd just throw the sex in too once you're married because that is one wonderful expression of that love and then you wouldn't be chomping on cotton candy you'd have steak dinners to clarify, he he has, "But can you and your wife do have sex, don't you?" I said, "Absolutely, within the safe and nurturing bonds of marriage, it's fun. It's wonderful when both married people feel safe and respected and cared for. You can serve it up any which way you want: intercourse, out of course, upper course, lower course. You can have all four courses." <coughs> but lust. Is hollow. It's dehumanizing. It's impersonal. It's lonely. For it just turns real life people into objects, photos, fantasies. They're not real and they'll never last. And that's one of the reasons Jesus was so concerned about lust. At the same time, he was so pro-sex within marriage. I'll give you a second reason. Because it's progressive and it's addictive in nature. I remember as a freshman at Vanderbilt back in the day, there was no internet back then. So the only way you get your porn is if you went to the corner you know, gas station, buy the magazines that they kept behind the counters back then. I don't think I had been at school longer than two or three days, and I was just kind of working my way down the dorm hallway, meeting guys from different parts of the country, and one day I happened into the room of two guys who, well, they were decorating their walls in a way I just never imagined doing. See, my roommate and I, we had a poster of Michael Jordan or Magic Johnson or somebody that was, you know, the great back then, and... But these guys, I I looked in and I'm like, and they had hung up about 10 or 12 centerfolds from Playboy or Penthouse. And they were on the wall lining the the backside of their headboards in their beds. And that was a little bit distracting, but I worked to avert my eyes by, by sitting where I could look at them in the opposite direction. Well, a month later... I was walking down the hall, and, and the door was open. I glanced in, and I noticed it wasn't just on that wall now. Now they had lined all four walls. And I was really wondering, what are you going to tell your mom at Parents Weekend? And, <clears throat> But follow me here. By Thanksgiving break of that, our freshman year, they had lined their ceiling even with just there wasn't a blank piece of wall or ceiling in their whole room. And by Christmas, they started trying to put them on the hallways outside. in the RA said, no, you can't decorate out here. Well, at that point, I started locking my door because I was just afraid they might come in and start working on my walls. And so <clears throat> I remember thinking, when will it be enough for you two? How many naked posters can you acquire Well, I know the answer now, decades later, it's never enough. Lust is like salt water. The more of it that you drink, the thirstier you grow. Just one more picture. Nowadays, just one more sight, one more touch, one more intimate talk with that just friend at work who's not your spouse. Just one more affair. It's progressive and it's addictive and it always demands more. Which leads to one more reason that Jesus was so serious about this problem. Because it's destructive. (coughs) Because it's destructive at its more advanced levels, lust will destroy the rest of the people who live under your roof. That would be your spouse and your children through the affairs and so that that you're found out having. And even at more damaging levels, it can even start involving molestation, incest, rape, trafficking, and other offenses, which aren't just sinful, but now they are also violations of the law, criminal offenses. But as true as all of that is, Jesus wasn't pointing any of those things out when it came to lust. He was just leaning into the reality that the most destroyed person when it comes to lust the luster. That's why in verses twenty nine and thirty, he talks about how lust will lead you straight to hell. Hell? You mean lust could find me in hell? Well, yes and no. Remember last week in Pastor Dan's very good sermon where he was using a, a, a parallel passage here in the sermon on the mount, talking about anger, where Jesus said a very similar thing, and Dan explained there's only one decision that definitively sends us to hell, and that is the rejection of the gospel, the rejection of Jesus Christ and the life that he came to give to us. But remember how Dan also said, you don't have to go to hell to experience hell. The word Jesus is using, incidentally, in this text right here, in the original language, is the word Gehenna. Do you know what Gehenna was? Everybody knew back then. Gehenna was the garbage dump outside the walls of Jerusalem. It's the place where they would put their trash, and it rotted and smoldered in a fire that was never extinguished outside the gates of Jerusalem, Gehenna. Jesus was saying, don't you see? Untended lust will spread, decay, and refuse into your life and ultimately leave you disintegrating and smoldering in the flames of your own making. And nowadays, even non-Christian, non-Jesus, non-Bible people are starting to catch up on the truth (coughs) of this reality. You see it in articles, secular articles, like one that I read a while back in in the magazine called Time. Let me cough for a minute. (coughs) <coughs> there we go. And the cover story was all about the problem of porn. Again, this is Time Magazine. This is no Christian magazine. And the article profiled in this article on porn and the problems of it, it profiled Noah Church, a 26-year-old firefighter in Oregon who was regularly using porn throughout his teen years, to where when he was older, he finally got to be with a real, live woman whose name he knew and whom he had feelings for but there was a problem now he couldn't get his hydraulics going his brain had grown so rutted by the porn that the only way that he could get his man parts fired up was through erotic porn friends that's not good that's not rapturous that's hell And Jesus was saying as much 2,000 years ago. People are finally catching up with what Jesus has always been saying. You're the one who's ending up in hell. And it's a hell of your own doing. It's a hell of your own making. (coughs) So let's move to the last third big point. What do we do about it? How can we be healed of this problem? I'll give you three subpoints in this one, too. First, by taking radical steps. Radical. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Throw it away. Literally? What's he meaning literally? Of course not. Because literally, you could gouge out both of your eyes and you could chop off both of your hands and you could still sit blind and maimed and be a dirty old man or woman. That won't fix it. (coughs) So don't get fixated on the literality of this. Jesus was simply saying, you're going to have to get radical about this. I remember our own Ben Stewart some years ago... (sniffs) Telling a story along these lines, which I verified in a text thread with him this week. Back when he was a student at seminary, uh, <clears throat> they didn't have wireless Wi Fi in the dorm where he was. And so one night he was studying and, and he was, uh, f- found his way to this link that turned out to be full of nudity. Uh, well, catching that reality quickly, he just cut the computer off and said, I just need to go to bed and be done. So he, he Got in bed, but his mind, he said, was racing. And he was curious. And he wanted to go turn it back on, and he couldn't sleep. And so you know what he did? (laughs) He says, I grabbed a knife, and I went, and I cut that internet cord right there says there probably a better way I could have done it, but I'll tell you this. He said, after I cut it, I slept like a baby after that. Radical steps. I think of one guy who a while back told me, after years of struggle, I've just learned I can never drive home from work this certain way. It'll get me every time. It's like the Ulysses and the sirens. I, I just, I cannot go by there. So I take a different way every day another man who told me some years ago I knew we had to move houses because my neighbor was coming on to me and I just knew we've got to move He said, best decision I ever made for my marriage for my children for my family we sold that house and we moved take radical steps Jesus was saying <clears throat> what else can we do to be liberated? B: Flee. Run. Get out. Like Joseph did in the story I alluded to earlier with Potiphar's wife. You remember what, what he did when she threw herself at him. He slithered out of his shirt and leaves her clutching the shirt, and he runs away like a baby. And he probably did look a little bit stupid, but at least he kept his integrity, his character intact. He was a whole person. And so will you be when you flee, held together by your integrity. Proverbs 6, 27 says, Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? The answer is No. Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? The answer is no. So why do you rationalize, maybe I could do No, you can't. Get out, flee, run now. <clears throat> I deliberated about sharing this story because it, it could seem like a violation of confidences. But I think, for reasons that I explain, it's it's okay, and I felt a release in the spirit to 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 share it with you because I believe, for one thing, I don't know the person's name, and I know that that person's from a totally different part of the country, and I don't have a feeling I'll ever see that person again. So a while back, after the service was over, I came down and stood as I often do, just in case somebody wants a prayer. And by the point that this moment happened, most people in the room had cleared. And I was about to, to go back to my study and eat my snack in between the services. When this woman comes, for, and I hadn't even seen her. And she comes over uh, and, and comes up to me, and she was sobbing. And, and I asked her, <clears throat> how could I pray for you? And when she collected herself, she said, I came here to Houston from a different state for an extramarital affair. And I know it's wrong. And that's how you can pray for me. I said, well, how long have you been here in Houston? She said, one week. I was thinking, well, that's better than one year. I said, does does your husband know where you are? And he said, she said, not exactly. I said, okay, I think I, I got it. Let me pray for you. And I just prayed for her, God, would you give her strength to do what is right now? Would you help her to turn and to run and to go home, and to repent, and to experience your grace, and maybe by your grace working in his heart, that that he'll have grace too, and that the marriage can be restored, and and rebuilt, and I prayed all for and I got to the end, and I said, amen, and she looked up at me, and I looked at her, and I said, well, so where are you going to go now? She said, to the airport? I said, I think that's a great answer. I said, I I wouldn't go back to wherever you've been. You can buy another suitcase with some clothes in it. But maybe if you'll do what you know is right, maybe God would restore your marriage and will heal this situation and will do a new work inside of you. She said, I'm going to the airport, I've got to go. She turned on her heel, and she walked right out. And I didn't, but I was thinking of hollering out like the angel did to Lot and his wife, don't look back. Keep going. Keep fleeing. Keep running. You're doing the right thing for once. Don't turn around until you're home. Get all the way there. Flee. Take radical steps. Flee. But don't flee from God. That's the last thing. You no, know, when it comes to sexual sin, the best place you can run is into the arms of our Savior, Jesus, who was the most fulfilled, faithful, complete human who ever lived, who never lusted, even though he surely had plenty of opportunities to do so. Women sometimes throwing themselves at him and washing his feet with their hair and, and so, but he didn't. So don't run from him. Don't turn and hide from him in the shadows. It's for you that he came into this world. It's for you that he lived the life of sinless perfection that you'll not live and that none of us can. It's for you that he died the death of punishment that you deserved. It's for you that he rose and conquered the grave. Don't run away from him. You need to run to him. Only then will you experience the liberation and the freedom that he offers. For if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Run to Jesus. By the way, you know why all of us are here at Faith Bridge? Because all of us are sinners. All of us have fallen short of God's glory. And all of us are men and women whom God is working on to lead us into freedom and into liberation and into abundant life and victory and and healing. That's what he wants for all of us. And that's why we gather Sunday after Sunday here and equally, not more importantly, in smaller groups throughout the week where we can confess our sins each to the other and pray for one another that we might be healed as James said, because only in bringing it out of the darkness into the light, the light of Jesus, the light of community, Christian community, with a fellow brother or a fellow sister, and saying, Here's, here it is, only then can the balloon which is lust be punctured, Only then can we be liberated. So don't flee from God. Don't flee from church. Don't flee from the redemption that he would offer you. Turn to Jesus. Turn to Christian community. Say, I need that. I want to step into freedom. Turn to him. Turn to one of us. And turn to the resources. We put together a fantastic list of resources for you. You can get it at if you go to faithbridge.org/purity. That's simple. faithbridge.org/purity. I think there's more than close to two dozen books that we're recommending, or and or websites that could be helpful to you. Turn to those as well. I know, though. I know it's happening even as I'm speaking right now. The the enemy, Satan, is saying, don't do that. Don't do that. You know you're too far gone. You know that he's talking to everybody else, but he is not talking to you because the enemy has always been out to steal and to kill and to destroy you. Don't listen to him. Don't you listen to him. You know the truth. And that truth will set you free. Let's turn to Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I want to pray now in three different ways, I think, uh, knowing that this is Uh, well, it's heavy content. And it's a real struggle that we all wrestle with in different ways. And so, friend, as we're praying here, I want to invite you, first of all, um, I want you to confess your sin. Even just right now in this quiet moment, why don't you just say, Lord, I'm owning it. I am acknowledging it, I'm setting it out there. Because we can't move forward unless you'll be honest with it, right? So why don't you just confess that, right? You know where the Lord's been even convicting you. Right now, you just confess. Bring that before the Lord in this quiet moment. Just say, I'm I'm setting this before you, Lord. And then, there's a second thing I wanna pray about. I want you to repent. You know what that word means? That word just means simply to turn around, to do a 180. To say, in essence, I've been going this direction, but I'm going the opposite direction. As of this, I am turning around. Sort of like that woman who I described I want you to repent right now before the Lord. Just say, Lord, I'm repenting. I'm repenting and I'm going to take steps, even maybe some of what we talked about today. I'm going to take some steps. I've got to change this or it's going to devour me. Talk about him. Talk about that with him right now. And then I wanna pray about one third thing. I want you to receive. Receive what? I want you to receive the gift of grace, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of love that he offers. We just said it in 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Why didn't you receive that right now? As if there's there's a big garden hose and he's just washing you off and say, I'm going to receive that grace. I'm going to dare to believe that it applies even to me. And if you haven't ever received his saving grace in the first place, then that would be the place for you to start to say, Jesus, I want to have a relationship with you to start with. I don't want you to be a lord or a savior way out there that does work in other people's lives. I want you to come into my life and into my heart and to forgive me and to change me and to transform me. I'm asking you to come in today. Receive his grace even now in this quiet moment. Thank you God. Thank you for this chance. Thank you for your word, for the timelessness of it, for the reality that the things Jesus was talking about is still the same things that we need you to talk to us about now. Thank you for your word. Won't you continue now to sow more deeply and deeply into our hearts and minds these truths that we've discussed? And don't let the devil pluck them out as we walk out of here. I pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.